welcome to week 10 uh, of our series we're, we're calling um, Equipped, where we're looking at spiritual disciplines, the, the, the practices that we can implement in our lives to grow into the people God's called us to be. And for the last several weeks, we've been in a section of this series that, that focuses very specifically on, on the discipline of prayer. And, and what we've been looking at is how to use prayer to process some of the most difficult situations and complex emotions and feelings that we're going to come across in this life. Because the truth is, I'm sure that you can say amen to this, that you and I are, are going to experience all kinds of things in this life that give rise to emotions and feelings that are powerful enough um, to destroy us if we don't know how to handle them correctly. Uh, what I mean by that, and we've talked about this the last several weeks, is that um, all of us are going to experience things in this life that, that cause us to experience the feeling of helplessness, very difficult thing to know how to navigate. Um, we're going to experience things in this life that cause us to doubt things that we used to be certain of. That's a very disorienting thing. Um, we're going to experience things in this life that cause us to feel the weight and the burden of guilt and shame, which can be a really kind of crippling burden to bear if you don't know what to do when you find yourself under the weight of that. And um, that's actually what we've been talking about the last three weeks. And so my, my, my point is, and I'm sure that your lives can attest to the fact that we're going to experience situations in this life that give rise to emotions and feelings that are strong enough to derail us if we don't know how to deal with them. And so the book of Psalms is amazing because it basically is a guide that, that is designed to teach you and I how to process literally every feeling and emotion that we're going to experience in this life through the discipline of prayer. So today we're going to talk about... Um, we're going to talk about, uh, you could call it a, an emotion, you could call it a feeling, but it's something that I think comes to the top of every list when you talk about um, an emotion or a feeling that has a tremendous amount of destructive power, uh, and that's anger. So we've talked about processing helplessness, we've talked about processing doubt, last week was guilt and shame. Today we're going to talk about how to process, how to use prayer to process anger, and anger you know, can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. It can have a lot of different sources. I'm going to talk about a very specific kind of anger this morning. And that's the anger uh, that arises in the human heart when you have been mistreated at the hands of someone else. Now, if this feels or sounds like a strange Father's Day sermon to you, um, I should be forthright. It's because it's not really a Father's Day sermon. I did not intend for this to be the Father's Day sermon. It was just what we happened to talk about today. But as I put this together, I could not help but think this. If fathers knew what to do with their anger and they knew how to handle it in a godly way, uh, I think society as a whole would be a whole lot better. So the question I want to ask today is how do you use prayer to process anger when you have been mistreated at the hands of someone else. We're going to look at a psalm that deals specifically and very narrowly about that thing, but, um, well, I'll just let the psalm speak for itself. It's Psalm chapter 137. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. 
May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it, destroy it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. This is God's word. Um, If you're hopping in for the first time today, I just think that's evidence that God has a sense of humor because this is a rough one to hop in on for the first time. Um, There's a, specifically in our culture, that's very, I think it's appropriate to say, light and fluffy. There's an expectation that I think most people have when you read the Psalms that the Psalms are these kind of beautiful, flowery, poems. And so especially in a culture like ours, there's a tendency to read what we just read and say, what on earth is that doing in the Bible? And, and I want to I give you two answers to that question, what that is doing in the Bible. Number one, Psalm 37 is an, 137 is almost a sacred look into the life of someone who has experienced a profound kind of suffering at the hands of someone else. Um, a suffering that I think it's, it's, it's appropriate to say most of the people listening to this um, might never truly be able to relate to, but it is a kind of suffering that hundreds of millions, if not billions of men and women have experienced in human history. Um, it's a kind of suffering that people are experiencing throughout the world even today. And so the psalm is, is valuable for no other reason. It's valuable because it expands our horizons. But even more than letting us into the life of somebody who's experienced a profound kind of suffering, this psalm is a guide that's meant to teach you and I how to deal with all of the anger that comes from that in a way that does not absolutely burn us alive, which anger will do if it's, if it's handled improperly. And so what we see in, in Psalm 137, there's three things that the psalmist does that we can learn from that you and I actually have to do with our anger if we, if we don't want to be destroyed by it. But before we get to that, before we get to what the psalmist did with his anger and what we can learn from that, uh, to lay the foundation this morning, um, I, I want to make sure that we understand exactly what the psalmist led through that led to the writing of this psalm. Because one of the things that, that's unique about Psalm 137 is that it is tied to a very specific historical event. What happened was the nation of Babylon um, besieged the capital city of Jerusalem and eventually took it over. And they did exactly what you would expect a conquering army to do when they entered the city. They, um, you know, they looted and they burned and they killed. Um, and they took the survivors of Israel to live as slaves um, and exiles in Babylon. And this psalm is written by um, an eyewitness survivor of all of those events. And in this psalm, two very specific, very painful eyewitness memories are recorded for us. And it's important that you understand both of these memories if you're going to understand um, the pain and the anger that gave birth to this psalm. The first of these two, two memories is, is uh, recorded for us in verse 7, uh, where, where we're, we're told that a um, group of people known as the Edomites, who were Israelites, uh, the Israelites' neighbors, they hated the Israelites. Um, when they heard that Babylon was getting ready to conquer Israel, they actually showed up to witness what was going on, and they cheered on the sidelines uh, during what was absolutely the most painful moment of uh, the Israelite people's lives, 
which is an incredibly cruel thing to do in and of itself. Um, But the second eyewitness memory that is so much harder for people in our culture to even uh, really think about, let alone kind of study in a psalm, um, is something that historians will tell you was very common practice, specifically in the ancient Near East, when a conquering army uh, would come into um, a civilization that they were overthrowing. And, um, and that is that the Babylonian soldiers, when they entered Jerusalem, having conquered the city, is, um, they would find mothers who were holding their babies in their arms. Uh, they would take the babies from their mother's arms. They would grab them by the feet, and they would kill them in the most inhumane way imaginable. And as much as I didn't want to walk us through that on Sunday morning, this is what's recorded in this psalm. This is the memory that God decided to have preserved in his word in Psalm 137. And it's vitally important that we understand the context of this if we're going to understand uh, all the pain and all the anger that this psalm represents. And so the question is, what on earth are you supposed to do with this kind of anger? And what we find here, and what we're going to look at first and foremost, is three things that this psalmist did that you and I are called to do if we're going to process our own anger in a way that doesn't eventually upend us or turn us into something that we would barely recognize today. The first thing the psalmist did is is the first thing that we're going to talk about. It's our first idea this morning. Number one, what you have to do uh, is own your anger. Uh, Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6 says this, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our leers on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs, and our tormentors for rejoicing, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. So what's happening in these verses is the Babylonian captors are coming to the the Israelite captives uh, and they're basically taunting them. Because everybody in the ancient Near East knew the, 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 uh, the claims of the Israelite nation. Israel claimed that they were, um, they were the ones who served the one true God, that there was no true God beside Yahweh, and so they kind of had the market cornered there. And they also claimed, and everyone knew that they claimed, to be God's chosen people. And, and a song of Zion, which the Babylonians are kind of asking them to sing, is a song that, that's basically rooted in those two ideas. A song of Zion was a kind of celebratory uh, psalm that the Israelites would sing to remind themselves of the greatness of their God and how blessed they were to be his people. And so in that context, the Babylonian captives are basically coming to these Israelites who've just lost everything that a person can conceivably lose in this life with the exception of their lives, which are about to be a lot more miserable because they're going to now live as slaves in Babylon. And they're saying, hey, hey Israelites, uh, sing us a song about how great your God is and how much he loves you. It, 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 un, unbelievable cruelty. You want to talk about salting the wound, I don't think that even begins to describe it. But, but what's amazing here is that the psalmist uh, is, is, is forthright about the fact that, that in a pretty bold act of protest, he refuses to do what the Babylonians ask him to do. He refuses to sing one of these songs. Um, but what he's doing through this act of protest in refusing to sing these songs is what he's actually, he's holding on to his anger. To refuse to sing these songs is, is, is for, he's saying, I'm refusing to let this go. I'm refusing to dismiss this. And he even says in refusing to sing these songs and, and, and you know, trivialize the songs of his people to entertain his captors for their amusement, he's saying, I'm not going to forget what you've done to us. 
I'm not going to forget what me and my people have been through. I'm not going to stop feeling everything that I should be feeling in the wake of what we've gone through by your hands and your cruelty and, and your injustice and your tyranny and all of that. that that's what's happening here. He's, he's owning his anger. Now, according to Scripture, I don't think this is going to surprise anybody, but Scripture is, is perfectly clear that it is wrong to be to, to explode in your anger, to be so dominated by your anger that you're controlled by your anger. I think most people understand that. But what you might be surprised to hear is that according to Scripture, it is equally wrong, just as it is to be controlled by your anger, so it is equally wrong to never be angry. Scripture never commands us to never be It actually commands the opposite. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, you if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you are actually commanded to be angry and yet not sin. That verse does not say, if you happen to get angry, do your best to not do anything stupid until the anger subsides. It commands you to be angry, just not to sin in your anger. Uh, And that's a command that makes perfect sense when you consider that Scripture from start to finish um, shows us that anger is actually an essential part of God's own character and his nature. Uh, routinely, throughout Old and New Testament, Scripture reminds us that God is a God um, that gets angry. And that's, that's hard for people in our culture because there's a tendency in our culture for people to only want a God of love and not a God of anger. But what I think people fail to realize there is that if you have a God who never gets angry, what you have is a God who doesn't love. Because all anger is, in its, in its purest form, anger is simply love moved to deal with a threat to the object of your love. If you never get angry, it's because there's no love in you whatsoever. I, I don't know that anybody's explained this um, in a more helpful way to me than, than a woman named Rebecca Pippert. She wrote a book called um, Hope Has Its Reasons, and this is how she explained it. She said, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. And if I, a flawed and sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? The point is that, that true love always gets angry. And, and anger in its purest form, as we said, is just love moved to deal with a threat to something that's threatening the object of your love. Uh, and we see this, in, in obviously, in the person of Jesus as well. It's remarkable that in his, the, the short amount of time that Jesus was here that's recorded for us in the gospel accounts, Jesus is routinely shown to be experiencing anger. He was angry uh, at the money changers in the temp- temple in John 2. He was angry at the religious leaders in Mark 3. He was angry when he stood beside the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. And what that means for us today is that if you are seeing things in this broken you know, sin-stained world, if you are seeing things the way that God sees them and the image of Christ is being continually formed in you, then you, you should be seeing things that anger you in this life. Means, I would say more so for any other group of people on the planet, more so for, for Christians, when you see any kind of violations to God's design for human flourishing, whether that's abuse, Uh, mistreatment or injustice, 
that should give rise to anger in you. When you see something that God says is not good, that's not the way that he wants the world to go, that's not a part of his original design, as his people, that should anger us. And I think that that concept is, is, is generally grasped by, by most people. But one thing I've noticed in the last eight years, you know, as a pastor, obviously I've had a, the opportunity to just meet with a lot of people and hear from a lot of people one-on-one. One thing that I've noticed, especially in Christians, is that there's a, there's a, there's a mindset that where I think a lot of Christians understand this idea in general, for whatever reason, uh, there's a mindset that, that says that the moment that I personally become the victim of mistreatment or abuse or injustice, now all of a sudden I should not feel angry about that, as though it's, it's a sign of spiritual maturity to deny anger or suppress anger when that's simply not the case, scripturally speaking. And the psalmist knew that here, and so what he's doing is owning his anger. And, and so to conclude this point, the, the first thing that, that I love about this psalm, and this is something that really resonates deeply with me about the book of Psalms in general, is that a psalm like this specifically proves that God does not expect you to be a sociopath. God does not expect you to experience quantifiably bad things in your life and pretend like they're anything other than what they are, which are bad things in your life. What God expects from people who are his people, people who claim to follow Jesus, is that we see things the way that he sees things and we get angry at the things that anger him. And so first and foremost, um, we need to own our anger. All right? So now that I have a really angry church, let me just try to clean up that idea because I realize that's an incomplete idea by itself. The second thing the psalmist shows us that we have to do with our anger in owning it, is number two, this is our second idea, you have to pray your anger. Now, we just looked at the first six verses of this psalm, and and basically the first six verses are like this ramp, and it keeps building, and it keeps building, and he's talking about what he's been through, and how on earth could I sing these songs to entertain my captors after all they put me and my people through? And so you would expect right after verse six that verse seven is, is the crescendo, you know, where, where he hits boiling point and the top comes off and this is where he's going to give full vent to his anger and, you know, maybe you'd expect to see some vow to avenge his enemies if, you know, it takes him till his final breath kind of thing. But instead of, the, of anything that even remotely resembles that in verse 7, what you're seeing is, is where you would expect the anger to be the most explosive. Verse 7 is the specific moment in the psalm when the psalmist begins speaking directly to God. When he says, remember... He begins speaking directly to God. And what he's doing in that moment is what the entire book of Psalms is designed to teach you and I to do, which is to take the full reality of what's going on in your heart into the full reality of the presence of God through the discipline of prayer. Now, we talked about this on the front end of our teaching last week. I think this is a helpful reminder. The overall message of Psalms is that whether you're... You know, everybody has a... a, um, a certain way that they tend to deal with what's going on in their heart. And, and really, generally speaking, you know, there's a way that kind of traditional religious people tend to deal with things on one end of the spectrum, and then there's a way that more secular, modern people tend to deal with things on the other end of the spectrum. And the message of Psalms uh, to both people, no matter where you're at, is that you're not doing it right. Because with, with, um, with traditional religious-minded people, there tends to be... Um, there tends to be a mindset that says that the way that you deal with your feelings is by, is by pretending that you don't have them. Meaning if, if you're feeling something in your heart that you know you should not feel, 
whether that's anger, whether that's bitterness, whether that's whatever, if it's a feeling that I know I shouldn't have, you know, the, the way that, that more traditional, religious-minded people deal with that is by just stuffing that down and pretending it's not there. That's how you deal with it. Whereas, you know, more modern, secular people go to the exact opposite extreme, and instead of denying what's going on in their heart, they tend to deify what's going on in their heart. And what I mean by that is, the, you know, the, the, the secular culture that we live in today um, w- would teach us, basically indoctrinate us with this idea that the most important thing you'll do in this life is look into your own heart. And, and whatever you find in there, whatever thoughts, whatever feelings, whatever impulses, whatever desires, that that's who you really are, that's the foundation of your identity, and you should spend your entire life pursuing the fulfillment of what's in your heart because you'll never be happy if you don't do that. And so where people on one end of the spectrum tend to just deny what's going on in their heart, and the other end of the spectrum, people tend to deify, you know, make, make, make what's going on in their heart their own God and their own kind of tour God throughout life. Psalms is basically saying you're both wrong. And in either way, you're going to run into catastrophe if you do that. On the one hand, it makes absolutely no sense to play pretend with a God who knows everything about you already. The psalmist never does that. On the other hand, it's a really foolish thing to believe that your heart is going to lead you to anything other than a lot of bad stuff in your life. And so the overall message of Psalms is that instead of doing either one of those things, it causes us to pray our feelings. And by that, I don't mean pray about our feelings. It's more than just pick up the spiritual phone and, and, and you know, dial God and say, hey, I'm feeling kind of angry today, just thought I'd check in, click kind of thing. It means digging inside your own heart, refusing to ignore what's going on in there, and in a reflective way, bringing the full reality of what's going on in your heart into the full reality of the presence of God, knowing that He and He alone can help us make sense of what's going on inside of us, because that's where real healing is found. That's the second thing we see the psalmist do, that this psalm challenges us to do, but it leads to the third thing. The third thing that we see the psalmist doing here, this is going to be our third and actually our, our last idea today, is number three, you have to limit your anger. You have to own your anger, you have to pray your anger, but you also have to limit your anger. I want to read verses seven, seven through nine to you. The psalmist says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it, destroy it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, Happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. <clears throat> Elephant in the room here, it does not sound like there's a lot of limiting going on in those verses. I realize that. Um, but when you look at what the psalmist does not say, you'll see what I mean. Um, at no point in this psalm does the psalmist declare that he's going to take matters into his own hands and pay his enemies back personally for what they did to him, which frankly is an amazing thing when you consider what the Babylonians did to the psalmist and his people that he personally had to witness and live through. It is an incredible thing that at no point in this psalm does he declare, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to handle this myself. And actually commentators will point out about this psalm that it's it's basically laid out like a court case, and it has three pretty distinct moves to it. Because on the front end, he basically swears himself in. On the front end of this psalm, the, the, the psalmist is saying, if I forget Jerusalem, may all these terrible things happen to me. Which is basically him, now he's under oath. He's sworn an oath. The next thing you see here is he presents two pieces of evidence to the judge. You know, you have the Edomites showing up just to gloat over the destruction of Israel, and then also the Babylonians murdering the most vulnerable citizens of Israel 
you know, the little ones. And then at the end here, in the verses that I just read, what, what he's doing is he's suggesting a sentence. He's suggesting a possible verdict that the judge could come to in light of what the offenders have done here. But as, as, as you know, kind of shocking as his suggested verdict is, what's important here is to zoom out and, and notice the fact, to me this is the most remarkable thing here, is that no, at no point in this psalm does the psalmist entertain the idea that he's the judge. At no point in this psalm does he assume that posture. And that's the, that's the, when you talk about limiting your anger, that's the essence of what it means to limit your anger. It means you can get as honest about what's going on in your, your heart as you need to. You can dig down as deeply within your own feelings and emotions as you need to, and you can lay all of those bare before a God who already knows they're there anyway. But the essence of limiting your anger means that as you unpack all of that in the presence of God and in a reflective way you self-examine in the presence of God, you do so with the recognition that I do not have the power, I do not have the wisdom, and I do not have the right to be the judge. And so in verse 7, when the psalmist says, remember, what he's saying is, God, you need to remember. You need to look at this. You're the judge. It's almost as though he's saying, God, I have all kinds of, of really strong opinions about how I think you should handle this, but in the end, this is yours to handle, and I trust that you're more qualified to do it than I am. Now, the question is, does that automatically take your anger away? And the answer is no, it does not. But what it does take away is your anger's ability to distort your life. That's the essence of limiting your anger. Now, to do, to do what the psalmist is doing here, you're going to need to accept what the psalmist has accepted here, which is something that, that, that people are very uncomfortable with in our culture. All right, what, what we need to accept if we're going to do this, if we're going to model this, is the reality that in God we have not only a loving father, but also a just judge. What, what this means is that you have to know God as, as, a, as a judge and to take your anger into his presence in order to avoid being completely consumed by it. And I, I came across a quote this week. It was from, it was from a Croatian Christian minister uh, named... Miroslav Volf, let me find, here it is. Um, he experienced um, fairly remarkable suffering, the, the likes of which you and I will, will most likely, most of us um, will never be able to sympathize with in our lives. He walked through a lot of that. His friends and his family walked through a lot of that in the Balkans in the 80s and 90s. And he spoke to this idea of the necessity of knowing God, not just as a loving father, but also a judge who would ensure that, that no injustice would finally remain. I want to read this quote to you because it's, 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 it's challenging, I think, to Christians specifically in the West. He said, In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's, quote, non-violence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. Now, in the middle of this quote, he, he recognized that there was going to be a lot of people, specifically in cultural contexts like ours, that, that take issue with this idea. Uh, you know, none of us know what it's like, unless somebody's got something they're carrying around that I was totally unaware of. None of us know what it's like 
to have a, you know, a, a band of vigilantes roll up into our village and, and murder our father and our brothers you know, before our very eyes and, and take our, our mothers and our sisters captive. And there's no police for us to go to. There's no government authority to appeal to. There's no justice, and we're not strong enough to meet that out our own. Most of us are never going to experience that. And, and Miroslav Volf, in, in, in delivering these words, knew that people in, in contexts like ours would have a very difficult time with this idea that God is going to judge so, so in, in the wake of that, he offered a thought experiment, which I think is so helpful, and, and here's what he said. He said, imagine that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers who've had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture is a Christian's attitude toward violence. The thesis is we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. And then he said this, and I, this is the end of the quote, and I think this is so devastatingly powerful. He said, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human non-violence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Now, I, I know I said a lot there, and you know, you're probably going to have to listen to the, you know, the um, recording of the sermon to get everything that there is to get from that quote, but if I can just summarize it here. Miroslav Volf was a person who experienced the profound kind of suffering that was a lot like the suffering described in Psalm 137. And what he came to, to realize is that when you experience that kind of suffering, the only way you're going to avoid allowing what you've experienced to turn you into a catalyst of suffering in somebody else's life is to know that in God you have not only a loving Father, but also a just judge who will judge the living and the dead and will ensure, finally, that one day no injustice will remain. That's the only way to avoid the, the, the need to take matters into your own hands and be consumed by your own anger. Now, in, in hearing all that, maybe you're thinking that this psalm doesn't sound quite as brutal as it did you know, when we got started today. But if I can ask kind of an interesting question, it might surprise you to hear a pastor asking, let me ask this, is this psalm wrong? What we've spent time in this morning is a psalm in which someone is unapologetically asking for the destruction of, of his enemies, the people that have caused him harm, and even suggesting ways that God might do that, might go about that. So, so let me ask the question, is Psalm 137 wrong? And the answer is no, it's not. That in this day, this psalmist did exactly what he was called to do. However, it, it, it's truthful to say at the same time that while the psalmist did not do anything wrong here, that if someone in this room today were to pray this same prayer, it would be wrong. And the reason for that is because God's revelation throughout human history has been a progressive revelation, meaning he did not show us everything that we needed to see about him at the beginning of time. He has revealed parts of who he is progressively throughout history. And we have access to a greater revelation of who God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ than the psalmist did here when he lived under the law in the Old Testament. And so what that means for you and I today is that we have resources that enable us to deal with our anger in a way that the psalmist 
was not able to do. And to explain what I mean there, I want to look at Luke chapter 19. In in Luke chapter 19, what you're studying is the the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's it's days before his crucifixion. He's entering into Jerusalem. And in, in specifically Luke's gospel, he records for us just a few verses that contain a detail about the triumphal entry that only Luke recorded for us. It's found in verses 41 through 44. It says, As Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and listen specifically to the phrases Jesus chose to use here. Speaking of Jerusalem, he said, They... Your enemies, O Jerusalem, Jesus said, they will crush you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus, in Luke 19, is directly referencing Psalm 137. He specifically references both of the eyewitness memories recorded in Psalm 137 and he's predicting them happening to Jerusalem. And he's predicting something that factually, literally, historically took place, which was the sack of Jerusalem by the uh, Roman general Titus in 70 AD. But what's so important to see here is that Jesus is walking into a city that he knows is about to have him unjustly murdered. Jesus is walking into a city full of people who are about to, they're about to commit the most heinous act of of cosmic injustice in human history, the murder of of the Son of God. Jesus is walking into that knowing that, and yet instead of celebrating their destruction and the fact that they're going to get what they have coming to them, here Jesus is weeping over it. And days later, after they proved him right, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the murder of the only truly innocent man to ever live, Jesus calls out and he says, Father, forgive them. And so the question that you should be asking is, how do you explain that change in posture toward those who are working in justice? What you have in Psalm 137 is the psalmist is praying for the destruction of his enemies while Jesus on the cross is praying for their forgiveness and their deliverance and their salvation. And what that looks like at first glance is that the psalmist just cared more about justice than Jesus, the Son of God, did. That's what that looks like to the untrained eye. But here's what's going on here. In Psalm 137, the psalmist is asking the same question that every single human heart asks when it experiences mistreatment. The question is, shouldn't somebody have to pay for this? What the psalmist is doing before God in Psalm 137, he's saying, look at how the Edomites celebrated when we went through the worst moments of our lives. And look at how the Babylonians entered into our city and unjustly murdered our most vulnerable citizens, our little ones, took them out of the arms of their mothers and killed them like animals. Shouldn't somebody have to pay for that? And that's the same exact question that every human heart asks when we experience mistreatment at the hands of somebody else, no matter how large or how small that offense is. And what we all naturally desire to do when asking that question is to make the people who hurt us pay. What we all naturally do, you don't need to train anybody to think this way, is we want the people who cause us to experience pain and suffering 
to feel that pain and suffering personally, to experience it personally. And what is happening on the cross, you will not find anything remotely like this in any other belief system in human history. What's happening on the cross is God himself is the one who is paying for it. God himself is the one who is experiencing all of that pain and all of that suffering. And, and, and see, in Psalm 137, what happened was Israel had its children taken from them and destroyed in a horrible act of injustice. But what's, what's almost unbelievable to hear myself say out loud is that on the cross, God the Father was experiencing exactly the same thing. What happened at Calvary was God the Father had his son, his one and only son, taken from him and destroyed in the most horrendous act of injustice ever worked at the hands of men. And so when, when the psalmist says, doesn't this need to be paid for? Doesn't justice need to be served? The answer is absolutely yes, it does. And on the cross, it was being paid for. On the cross, justice was being served. And on the cross, what was happening was God himself was dealing with all the inhumanity and all the unspeakable evil that people have worked since the day that we walked out of him on him in Genesis chapter 3 so that we could be reconciled to God. And so if you've ever found yourself asking the question, well, why is it that God allows these things? Why wouldn't God just put an end to it today? The answer is because if God put an end to evil and suffering and all of its causes today, then none of us would be left standing tomorrow. And so what he did at Calvary, what God did at Calvary in his infinite wisdom and his infinite love and his infinite justice and his infinite mercy all coming together is God found a way to ensure that he would one day end evil and suffering forever without ending us. And now the gates of heaven is, have been thrown open so that we might be saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And so we're, we're almost done here, but here's what all this means for us today. Because we can see something, and Jesus even said, marching into Jerusalem, that you just can't see it. And in Psalm 137, that psalmist would have given anything to be able to see it. What we can see now at Calvary, through the eyes of faith, this thing called the gospel. Because we can see something that the psalmist could not see in one, Psalm 137, it means that we are, not only are we empowered, but we are commanded to do, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, we are commanded to do something that the psalmist could not do. And that is to allow our anger to be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. And that means two things. First and foremost, allowing your anger to be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ means that you will forgive those who mistreat you you will forgive those who have caused you pain. And as simple as that sounds, I don't think anybody really understands exactly how difficult it is to really forgive somebody. Because to forgive someone is to personally choose to absorb the debt of their sin, to pay that price yourself. In any relationship whatsoever, when someone sins against someone else, a debt is created. And if you are a person who has been sinned against... And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you probably are right now. In some area of your life, someone has probably sinned against you. When that happens and you have been sinned against, in that moment you have a choice. You can demand that the offender pay for what they did to you, that they absorb that cost personally for what they did, or you can make the unbelievably difficult decision to absorb the cost of their sin personally and to choose to pay that yourself. Because... Forgiveness does not absolve the debt of sin. It still needs to be paid for. The difference is you're choosing to pay it instead of demanding that someone else does. And so when I choose to forgive somebody, this means that I am refusing to continue to go through life rehearsing their failure by bringing it up either to them, to other people, or even to myself. 
It is, it is one of the hardest things the human heart will ever have to do, but it's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ commands you and I to do as followers of Jesus. And the only way we're ever going to be able to do that is to see Jesus Christ absorbing the cost of your and my sin, to see him paying a debt that was not his to pay. Only that will give us the emotional and psychological energy to be able to forgive someone else. But as important as that is, that's only half of what it means to allow your anger to be shaped by the cross of Jesus. I want to leave you with this final idea while I call the worship team back up. I, I was, this teaching was so hard for me to figure out how to end. I wanted to make sure that I, that I made sure to speak to, to everybody to the best of my ability that was coming to church, that was listening to this this morning. Here's what I mean. I have to believe that there are people listening to this right now, you have been badly mistreated by somebody. Uh, or maybe you are being mistreated by somebody right now and you've heard everything that I've said up to this point and, and the thought in your mind is, okay, so what you're saying is I am called to be a doormat. That this person in my life is a constant source of pain to me. They are constantly mistreating me. There's no sign that they're going to change and you're telling me I just have to deal with that because Jesus died for me. Is that, is that what you're called to do? The answer, biblically speaking, is absolutely not. Not if you were legitimately allowing yourself to be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. This is so important. This will be the final thing we touch on. When we look at the cross, what we are seeing is the image for how we are called to treat and to deal with people who have wronged us. But it is imperative that we understand that the cross shows us not only the depths of God's love for us, the cross not only shows you the depths of God's love for you, it shows you the depths of your own sin. The cross is, the cross is this tool that forces you to face how bad the problems really are in your life. On the cross, Jesus is saying, this is how deep your problems go. This is how lost you really are. This is how ugly your sin is. This is how destructive your sin actually is. Jesus on the cross is not just showing you his love. He's showing you things about yourself that you don't want to see. He's telling you things about yourself that you don't want to hear. But what's amazing about Jesus is that he's only doing that for your good. He is only doing that for your redemption out of love for you. And if you are allowing your anger to be shaped by the cross, that means you will do exactly the same thing to the people in your life who have sinned against you. You won't be a doormat because that's not loving and that's not forgiveness. That's not what Jesus did for you and that's not going to help the people in your life who need to change see their need to change. What you'll do is you will confront those who have hurt you and who have wounded you the same way that the cross of Jesus Christ confronts you but you'll do it with the same motives that Jesus has towards you. Not out of vengeance for their destruction, but out of justice for their deliverance and for their redemption. And so to conclude the matter, if you have lived for any length of time, I'm confident that you know what it's like to be mistreated by somebody else. And those situations give rise to a kind of anger that not a single one of us naturally handles well. So I don't know where you're coming from today, but my conviction is that some of us have been wounded by people that we need to forgive. Some of us have been wounded by people that we need to confront. But wherever God has us today, whatever he's calling us to tomorrow, we will find the power to do everything that we need to do at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you process anger. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. God, there's so many feelings and emotions that we experience in this life that we're just not qualified to deal with. We need you. And it's arrogance for us to ever entertain 
a different idea. In God, anger especially has such a destructive power. It's caused so much destruction in our lives and the lives of the people around us. And it's something that we can't handle on our own. So wherever, wherever your people are coming from, God, everybody's got a unique story. There's something unique that you're doing in the life of everyone listening to this right now. Wherever they're coming from, whether you're calling them to forgive for the first time, to confront for the first time, whatever it means for them to allow the cross of Jesus Christ to inform and to shape their anger, would you help us to see Jesus on the cross for our And would you help us to be people that are molded first and foremost by that? Whatever that means for us, would you help us to live that out the way that our Savior lived it out for us in our place? By grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Amen.